What tricks us here, what makes us believe in a thought that could exist for itself prior to expression, are the already constituted and already expressed thoughts that we can silently recall to ourselves, and by which we give ourselves the illusion of an inner life. But in fact, this supposed silence is buzzing with words. This inner life is an inner language. Hello, I'm Julia DeBoer, and you're listening to Critical Faith, a podcast sponsored by the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. Here at the Institute, we have a very question and conversation based method of instruction. Most of our classes involve reading philosophical texts on our own time and bringing questions and insights into the classroom, ready to review the material in a rather unformatted discussion. We are encouraged to bring our own experiences and interests to bear on the class material and to ask questions which are relevant to our own research. Today, I am joined by ICS alumnus Andrew Tebbett, currently studying at the University of Toronto. I am a junior member or MA student here at the Institute. My interest is the philosophy of language, specifically the aesthetics of language. For a year or so, Andrew has been telling me that I would enjoy reading the work of French phenomenologist Maurice Merleau-Ponty, and that it would be helpful to my research. In the spirit of the pedagogy we learned at ICS, we both read a chapter from Merleau-Ponty's book, The Phenomenology of Perception, and have gathered around the microphone to discuss it. Andrew has read more Merleau-Ponty than I, so I asked him some questions to situate the book and specific chapter in relation to Merleau-Ponty's scholarship as a whole, and then we discussed some of the places the chapter went, which were of interest to us. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Julia. How are you today? Doing quite well. Uh, Let me set the stage for our listeners. Uh, It's a very gray Toronto day, and there is construction (laughs) being done outside the window of the office that we're recording in. Yes, Uh, is that not the case? Yes, there might be a lot of noise pollution today. Uh, Because across the hall, there's another class going on, and one down the hall. And so we are recording in this tiny office. I've uh, inadvertently booted out uh, one of the profs who often works in here. And uh, thank you, Gideon. He's now studying <laughs> in a coffee shop. Uh, it was a lot busier than I thought it would be for a Thursday morning. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the work that you are doing for your PhD? Sure. My project is basically an exploration of parallel between the idea of religion and the idea of forgiveness in, in Hegel, and in particular in his work, Phenomenology of Spirit. And the, the parallel that I'm, that I'm sort of trying to draw out there is the parallel between religion and forgiveness as practices through which communities express themselves or sort of give voice or give utterance to their basic sense for who they are. The parallel has to do with how communities define who they are, how they express who they are, and then also how, in expressing who they are, how they express their difference from other communities. So religion and forgiveness, I think for Hegel, are are acts that are two kinds of practice that do that. And what's interesting about that connection between religion and forgiveness is that, like, you know, forgiveness works by the way, that I'm, the way that I'm trying to understand forgiveness is as a gesture that determines whether someone or something belongs, right? So to offer forgiveness is to, in some way, say, like, yeah, you, you know, you belong here. Or, or not to offer forgiveness is to say, you know, you don't belong here. So that, uh, that's the sense in which forgiveness works as a way of defining the community. But you know, forgiveness has sort of embedded in its idea um, this this norm of openness. Um, as Derrida argues, you know, I, ideally, or in principle, he says forgiveness is unlimited. Like there's no limit to forgiveness. It itself is this sort of unlimited ideal. So, following that parallel between forgiveness and and religion as ways that communities, you know, define themselves and negotiate their borders. The interesting thing that I'm that I'm trying to draw out is is the sense in which forgiveness embeds a kind of norm of openness, a norm of, I guess, inclusivity or, or movement towards inclusivity at the very heart of, of, of how a community, and particularly a religious community, uh, defines itself. And how does that bring you to be reading someone like Merleau-Ponty? It... <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah, so my, the project's on Hegel. The project that I'm doing is on Hegel, so it's not, I, I, I use a little bit of Merleau-Ponty in the dissertation, but 
I've read some Merleau-Ponty, and while I'm not necessarily studying him as much as I'm studying other thinkers, there is a, a really powerful resonance between his account of communication and the one that I'm pursuing in Hegel. And it has to be basically with the idea of recognitions. Like, so for, for Hegel, religion and forgiveness are two kinds of recognition, two ways in which we as sort of individuals work out our identities in community. Hegel's basic idea, or, or the, the phenomenon that Hegel points out in when he's talking about recognition is the fact that as, as individual agents or individual self-conscious beings, we are through and through communal. Like we only, we only have that individual sense of who we are through communication and negotiation and recognition with other people. Yeah. And, and so for, for Hegel, one of the most significant ways in which recognition works, I mean, arguably what recognition ultimately is, is communication. And what's really powerful in Merleau-Ponty is his account of communication and that it's, you know, to, to communicate with others or to be able to communicate with others for Merleau-Ponty isn't just to share a language. Like it's not just to share, a, you know, the thing called English. It's not just a matter of sharing a linguistic identity. It's rather a matter of sharing, in a quite literal sense, sharing a body. The, the possibility for communication resides basically all the way down into, into our bodies, right? The fact that we can communicate sh uh, reveals the fact that um, those of us who do communicate share a kind of social body through which we make sense together. That there are similarities not just in the grammar of how the shared language is being spoken, but in the way that it will be expressed in the body when someone is speaking it. Yeah, and so so beneath, to use that kind of metaphor, or sort of more fundamental than something like a rigid, or not rigid, but a, but a sophisticated structure of grammar is something like habit or gesture. Um, and really, it's, it's a matter of sharing the world, right? Sharing the world in, in, in the fact that we share a way of being in the world, a way of being embodied in the world, right? So yeah, part of, part of Merleau-Ponty's point, and probably we'll get into this, is that those things that we tend to identify as language, like structures of grammar, words, you know, systems of communication, like those, those are real things, but they have, uh, they, they have, they are rooted in something more fundamental, which is a, a shared sort of habitual, expressive, gestural way of being in the world together. Um, and that, that's what I think is a powerful kind of, or pow powerful account of, of how recognition works um, in Merleau-Ponty. So this chapter is very focused on language in a way that other chapters are not. Can you tell us a little bit about where the book has come so far before we get to this chapter and why this is kind of a, a momentary interlude for him? It's not the focus of the whole book, why he departs from talking about language and expression in this kind of explicit pairing uh, to go on to talk about other things later on. So we are, the chapter we read together is called The Body as Expression and Speech, and it is the sixth chapter of part one of Merleau-Ponty's book, Phenomenology of Perception, which has overall three parts. It has a very long uh, introduction. It's got part one called The Body, Part two, the perceived world, and part three, being for itself and being in the world. And so the, the, the title of Melifondi's book is Phenomenology of Perception, but basically explains what he's up to. And it's a phenomenology of perception. It's, it's a phenomenology basically of, of experience. Of, you know, he, he, um, now, often when Merleau-Ponty uh, is brought up, people, people often bring up Merleau-Ponty as the person who, who did a phenomenology of the body, um, which, is, which is true in a sense. Um, insofar as the first part of this book, um, a substantial part of this book is about the body. But I, I think the thing to notice in terms of, in terms of what Merleau-Ponty is doing is that he doesn't call the book a phenomenology of the body. It's a phenomenology of perception. It's a phenomenology of perceptual experience. But his point is that, or his point will be that in order to properly talk about perception or experience, you necessarily have to talk about the body because the body isn't just a thing in our experience. Rather, the body is that in which our experience happens. The, the body is, in a way, coextensive with everything that is and could be in our experience. And so, basically, part one of the book is, is devoted to making that point. Um, it's only it's, and it's, in a way, only really at part two where he actually takes up his 
starts to do his phenomenology, having established in part one that, you know, to do phenomenology, to talk about experience is necessarily to talk about the body. So Merleau-Ponty opens this chapter, chapter six, with a discussion of aphasia, the uh, condition where after brain damage, a certain aspect of speech has been lost. So there's Wernicke's aphasia, which is the inability to perceive words uh, in contrast to injuries which occur to a different brain, uh, a different part of the brain, which might result in something like Broca's aphasia or the inability to generate correct speech. What this points out is that the act of speaking is the result of many simultaneous functions cooperating. And to different parts of the brain cooperating, Merleau-Ponty wants to add the body cooperating. That similarly to uh, injury occurring to one part of the brain, if you remove expression from speaking, uh, you don't have full language, you just have parts of language. So this is how he starts off the discussion. Uh, it's really not the endpoint of his phenomenology of speech. Can you tell us a little bit about where the chapter will be headed? Yeah, sure. It's, it's good to to bring up that first point about aphasia because it Merleau-Ponty uses that, that example, the example of, of that particular pathology, uh, to make what I think is his first basic thesis in the chapter, which is the idea that the word has a sense, as he says, or the word itself is the is the site of its own significance. And I'll say a little bit um, in a minute about like what kind of thesis that is and and, and how it's how, what it's a thesis against. Um, but let me let me go back and just say a little bit more uh, broadly uh, about what the um, chapter six is doing. So just just going back to Merleau-Ponty's overall project, right? Like he's doing a phenomenology, and in doing a phenomenology, what he wants to expose is the fact of something like our fundamental being in the world, and that's something he wants to to reveal or or expose, opposed to something like Cartesian subject-object dualism. Most of the time, the theses that he's trying to he's trying to work against are are that kind of dualism, the idea that subject and object are fundamentally distinct. And he wants to say, like, no, if you if you pay attention to how experience works, if you pay attention to how perception works, if you go, as Husserl says, go back to the things themselves and do phenomenology, you you notice that beneath anything like a subject object distinction is something like a subject object non distinction, which someone like Heidegger will thematize as being in the world. And I think similarly for Merleau-Ponty, it is, you know, our, our basic, the, the basic context of our experience is a kind of being in the world. So in that regard, it's worth noting at the very beginning of the chapter, chapter six, Merleau-Ponty says, by now seeking to describe the phenomenon of speech and the deliberate act of signification, we will have the opportunity, opportunity to leave behind once and for all the classical subject object dichotomy so just just as the book as a whole isn't about the body as a particular thing in experience but it's about experience and how experience is fundamentally embodied this chapter as well isn't isn't just about the the single phenomenon of language as opposed to other things with respect to our body in a way language or more accurately expression is is the experience that sort of most fully fulfills or is the most full fulfillment of our body of what our body can do and it's in it's in noticing the the fundamentally expressive the fundamentally self-transcending as he'll say character of the body that we're able to overcome that subject object distinction following up on that theme of collapsing the subject object divide he mediates between two long-standing ideas of how signification in words actually occurs. Um, humans don't impose language upon their environment. It's developing through the body and through interaction with the environment. So the means of signification are not human impositions of meaning, nor are they entirely arbitrary because it's mediated through experience. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of schools of thought on signification that he's contradicting here or that he's uh, trying to nuance? Well, yeah. So you're asking about the, the sort of original discussion of aphasia um, and the two accounts that he's always attempting or always trying to um, convince us don't work. Yeah, which I said I'd talk about, so <laughs> I should do that. 
Um, so I said, yeah, I said that the, the, the sort of first thesis that Merleau-Ponty wants us to um, wants to give us is the idea that the word itself bears its significance, and that that thesis is opposed to to two other accounts that end up stripping the word itself of its of its significance. And he calls them the first one's empiricism, and the other one, the second one, is called intellectualism. Empiricism basically uh, is the idea that w what words are are kind of accompaniments of of stimuli. Like so, when when it, when we're using words, what's happening is we're sort of adding somehow, or there is being added a kind of verbal phenomenon, a worldly phenomenon to some kind of stimuli or some kind of verbal image, as he calls it. Some of them treat language as a matter of you know mechanical. Uh, objective physical or physiological stimuli working together produce a word at the end of that process other accounts treat it like a like a matter of psychological stimuli working together but in any case both for Merleau-Ponty both treat the word as yeah accompanying a kind of what he says what he calls a third person process of stimuli so Pierce's account removes any kind of subjective agency from from the equation and words are just the sort of byproduct of a kind of non subject like objective causal mechanism right so you what you have there is speech without a subject for intellectualism on the other hand it's kind of the opposite you have you have a subject without speech and merleau-ponty talks about how new research in the issue of aphasia sort of leads people to to posit this intellectualist thesis so what ends up being noticed is that you know the the patient who has aphasia is is unable to generate spontaneous speech is, un, is unable to sort of but can answer a specific question like can can operate with speech at that sort of automatic mechanistic level that leads people to posit the idea that, that you know what's what's happening in aphasia or, or the root of, of that condition is a sort of defect as it were at the level of thought so that must mean that the heart of speech is thought and then, you know, if, if the real thing happening in, in speech is, is thought, if speech is ultimately a kind of mental activity, then w words are the external sign of a thought, right? They are the translation in the world of objective presence of a, of a, of a non-objective, subjective thought process. So there, as I said, you have a subject without speech. Like you have speech, but speech comes after the fact. The real thing is, is the subject. And against, these, against both of these accounts, against empiricism as speech without a subject, and against intellectualism as a subject without speech, Merleau-Ponty says what we should pay attention to is the phenomenon of speaking itself. And if you attend to, to that, to those phenomena, if you attend to the act of speech, you'll notice that these accounts that end up stripping or, or dividing subject and speech, or in fact dividing subject and object, can't really account for sort of everyday experiences of, of speaking. So the idea there is. If if it if it was the case that as both of these theories propose that that speech and thought are distinct, and that the act of speaking is is distinct from the act of thinking, which which both theories end up presuming, and we can't really explain the sort of very familiar phenomenon of, of of speaking, you know, and not really having the thoughts beforehand, right? Like usually when when we're when we're speaking, we're doing the thinking simultaneously. So Merle, and Merleau-Ponty will say that. In our everyday experience, our thought is our speech. When, like when we're speaking, we don't first think, "Here's my nice sentence. Now I, I will just, you know, tr translate it into words, or I will just recite it, the sort of completed sentence." Um, rather, the act of building it, putting a sentence together, the act of of speaking, is at the same time the act of of expressing or uttering and the act of of thinking. Um, and it's important that I that I say act there because Merleau-Ponty says you got to want to pay attention to to speech as a kind of activity. We don't want to obscure that activity by imposing these kinds of th like his. So his point um, isn't isn't just that he prefers you know his own phenomenological account. It's that it's that those other two accounts actually impose that subject object dualism or that idea of, of representational thinking onto what is the real phenomenon of speaking, which is which is. So he says that these two accounts are incomplete, 
the Cartesian stance of subject-object just doesn't uh, explain the everyday experience of language. So let's talk a little bit about what signification looks like for him. It comes through expression in the body, through gesture. Yeah, yeah, just, gesture is, is a, an important thing to to bring out. It's, a, it's a, a, an important idea in the chapter, and I think... Um, yeah, that'd, that'd be the second sort of thesis that I would point to in this chapter. So if the first one was the idea that as opposed to empiricism and intellectualism, the word itself is the site of its own meaning. And so his, the second main thesis is that what we typically think of as language or linguistic gesture has basically the same characteristics of bodily gesture or body language or enacted gestural signification. So I'll, let me try to connect those ideas. So if, it, if it's the case that sense or meaning or signification, the, the, the significance of words isn't originally in our minds and then, and then is translated, but is actually, in fact, out there in the word that we say, that means that to locate the site of, of significance is to locate it out there, right? So, so thereby also to locate where we are when we are making meaning, when we are signifying, when we are expressing, is, is to locate us ourselves out there. So this is how this account of language connects up with Merleau-Ponty's basic thesis of being in the world. Language is one of the most powerful ways in which that reveals our basic being in the world. We don't think and then go outside of our thoughts to communicate. Communication reveals the fact that we are always already outside exposed to a world that isn't just a world of material objects, but is a world of, of significance. Like he says at some point that our ability to use a word is very much like our ability to use our hands to manipulate objects in the world. So he, he sort of recalls things that he said about the nature of space and, and, and experiencing space as a body. Uh, so j just like I don't have to think about where my hands go when I want to grab my keys. Um, what I'm thinking about is keys and then my hands just do their thing and get the keys. Like Just, just like there isn't a, a process of of thought or intellection whereby I say, oh, I want to get my keys, I better reach my hand. Similarly with words, but more obviously with gestures, when the situation we're in calls for some kind of communicative response, we typically don't have to think, oh, what should I do? Or at least when it comes to gesture, we don't have to do that. When someone waves at us, we don't have to think, oh, what the person made that gesture, what does that mean? Oh, it means this thing. It means they're saying hi. How do I say hi? Oh, I, I should wave back. We just wave back. The, the fact that there isn't that process of translation, the fact that there isn't that, that sort of two-step process shows that, first of all, we are sort of exposed to a world in which people wave at us. And our way of being in that world is already gestural, right? We're already caught up in, in processes of communication. And so he wants us to notice that you know gesture, which is to say the, using our body to, to be expressive or to communicate, is, is in a way coextensive with with being in the world, right? Um, it's instinctive. It's not a concerted effort in the way that speech pops into our brains and we don't have to tell ourselves to generate speech. Yeah. Um, yeah. So to expression, because it isn't it isn't speech and expression. Yeah. And so to think about them as radical separate things that the way that we experience gesture, that it's as uh, in the moment and as effortless as generating speech. Yeah, that's right. I like um, you're pointing out that these things aren't distinct, right? Like he, he you know, from Ponte, we, we live our experience as a kind of whole, right? And so we don't, we don't typically have to move from gestured expression to linguistic expression. Like right now I'm speaking with words, but also moving my hands around. Like these things are all happening at once. They're all part of the same, basically embodied expressive context that is being in the world for me um so and again he's not Merleau doesn't want to deny that there are discrete things like words he's not going to deny that there are discrete things like thoughts he wants to say don't begin with the distinction so as there's not a distinction between thought and speech there's not a distinction between speech and gesture right okay. and he uh he moves away from a sort of uh description of language which is uh explained through the metaphor of sight you know we create word pictures in our mind and moves towards describing language as embodying the world around us and rather than 
having word pictures in our mind, we think of ourselves moving through the world and describing that through language. So it's not something visual. It's not visually mediated. It's mediated through the the other uh, senses. So sight might be one of the ways in which we interact with the uh, world around us, but equally taste and touch, all of the senses are also these uh, ways of putting us in touch with the environment around us. That all of the senses are ultimately going to be shaping our language as well. And we don't just think of objects visually and then try and come up with a word to label them, but we move about in a physical way. And so in our head, uh, there's a, a physical environment that we have represented there in which we also interact with the objects that we will eventually name with language. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right, and I th- that makes me think of uh, a, per- a particular uh, passage towards the end of the chapter that I think is is quite, uh, in a way, definitive of what of what Merleau-Ponty is trying to argue in this chapter. He says, so basically, in challenging the sort of rationalist picture that you know thought, is, thought is independent and self-contained, and then somehow translates itself into language. You know, in in opposition to that picture of things, he says, what what does language express? If it does not express thought, it presents, it presents, or rather it is, the subject's taking up of a position in the world of his significations, right? So the, the picture that Merleau-Ponty wants us, is encouraging us to, to adopt here is the fact that language isn't, or speech or words are not like an external cloaking or translation of, of some already pre-existing thought process but rather language is the way that we as thinking beings take up a stance in our world right we are as he wants to say beings in the world right we're 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 not just purely we're not just sort of unworldly subjects that have to leave that domain of subjectivity to, to get into the world we're already in the world right we're already exposed to something outside of us and languages languages is one of and and perhaps the most comprehensive way that we take up that being in the world um and make sense out of it right so all of the ways in which in which we are exposed to the world outside of us or or have have contact with the world outside of us as as you say like you know the various forms in which we um sense the world those are all sort of implicated in in the act of expression expression isn't isn't this the process where I have an idea and say, oh, how am I going to translate that idea into some into a worldly phenomenon that, that that's a world? Rather, it, it is rather because rather there's an underlying sort of continuity between the thought that I want to express and and the and the worldly expression or taking up of a position that that is the expression of thought. Right. So so a few times he he points to the to the fact that you know if it were the case that there was this distinction between subject and object or subject and world like if, if if that really if that were metaphysically right it'd be really hard to explain why thought kind of of itself moves towards expression like why do we feel feel compelled to get our thoughts out there well it's because that getting out there is not incidental to the thought there's a there's an underlying continuity between thinking and speaking or saying and expressing but also that uh not just that it's not incidental, but language is what brings those things into focus. So he has this uh, passage uh, early on about how things that we're familiar with in our environment almost can appear fuzzy and distant if we can't remember or can't recall immediately the words to to say them. So he says, uh, if speech presupposes thought or if speaking was primarily the act of connecting with the object through knowledge, intention, or through a representation, then we could not understand why thought uh, tends toward expression as if towards its completion. Why the most familiar object appears indeterminate so long as we have not remembered its name. Yeah, and, and that's like, in terms of the way the chapter is set up. On my reading, that's that's sort of where he he sort of introduces his own position. Prior to that, he's he's been sort of accounting for the the two alternate approaches, namely uh, empiricism and intellectualism, that that he he thinks are insufficient. And here he's saying. If you really want to understand expression and or meaning and how we do that, you gotta to attend to these quite familiar phenomena. If if it was if it was the case that speaking presupposed uh, an already completed thought process, 
we can never really account for the fact that like often or for the most part when we're speaking we have to kind of find the words as we're going along like even yeah. like i'm doing right now it's not like i'm thinking and then translating it's not like there's 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 two moments happening where um i'm thinking oh what should i say and then saying okay that sounds that will that'll sound good and then i'll say it right right um usually usually thinking is the act of of speaking that's why we have to sort of pause and say um yeah. and think about what we're going to say because the thought isn't there before us before we before we go to speak right so to think inside our heads is just to uh speak in our heads without enunciating it into actual auditory sound yeah. but the same process of thinking while we're speaking that same phenomenon is is really just an external representation yeah. of the way that thinking occurs yeah. in the mind and it's not it's he's not saying that like it's impossible to to think to, to oneself silently like that's not it's not his point isn't his point isn't, isn't to you can think to yourself silently it just it's still worded exactly yeah so he's not saying thought is an illusion like thought is a it's a real part of our experience but it's not metaphysically or, or ontologically cut off from from expression or f from our being being in the world or being world worldly you can think about you know when think about those moments where you're you are silently thinking to yourself and when you when you arrive at a, a kind of satisfaction about what you're thinking usually usually what that means is that you've you've kind of come up with a sentence in your thoughts so like the, the the phenomenon that he wants to turn our attention to there is the phenomenon or the, the fact that thinking of itself of its own accord as it were wants to become speech even if you don't actually say anything it's trying to become articulate expression right mm -hmm. um, there's just this drive to be linguistic in yeah. the way that we experience our yeah. world yeah and and so basically expression is is the phenomenon that Merleau-Ponty wants to point out in this chapter right the the sort of impulse that we have to make sense and to make sense you know singularly and and creatively so it um while it's true that language as you know the english language exists as a as a sort of reservoir of existing sentences and phrases and and words um that's not the that's not the ultimate fact or the ultimate significance of language. Like that 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 is a sort of resource that we have as as linguistic beings, but even that is is answerable to expression. So he'll say that, you know, sedimented or accomplished language is both um, the product of of new and innovative expression, and it's ultimately the context in which new and innovative expression is going to happen right so yeah there's this reciprocal relationship between the word that has already been spoken and the word which is speaking now one of the other things that he talks about in relation to aphasia is that it points to an aesthetic layer of meaning so often pushed aside when we just think of language in terms of text and not bodily expression since with certain types of aphasia people can still read very expressively while not understanding the semantic content uh, that there's a uh, there's this layer of it that that isn't only answerable to semantics but also to bodily semantics and I mean I'm I'm a little bit confused I'm not confused by the aesthetic layer being there I'm a little confused about how uh, it's possible for patients with aphasia to read expressively because the bodily expression is not inherently disconnected from the semantic layer because when you're reading a text there's a certain amount of internal uh, interpretation that goes on to say that this word here r-e-a-d is read and not read that we're semantically interpreting in the moment of reading very expressively so i don't think it's that we can completely separate those two but that the the body expressing language has an importance that is often underestimated. And when we when we hear about uh, like AI language programs and about them not being real, I think Merleau-Ponty's critique of that would say, well, they're not real because they don't have the bodily expression. It's not that they're uh, incomprehensible to people. They're just missing the ethos of it being in a body. Yeah, this gets at... Um what I often find is a, a tricky issue about Merleau-Ponty's text is, is the, the particular way that he, or the particular use that he has for, for these um, um, conditions that he describes, these sort of abnormal abnormalities 
um, that, that he wants to use to reveal something about quote-unquote normal experience or experience in general. And because it's usually, he's usually trying to characterize a particular patient's experience. Often the way, often his strategy is to say, here's, here's the, the, the typical account of why the, this patient suffers from this condition. But here's how that account misses something because here's what the patient can nevertheless do. And I think, I think with respect to the example that you're, that you're bringing up about the sort of aesthetic embodied layer of, of signification, he's, what Merleau-Ponty is saying is like, notice that the patient can nevertheless, even though, even though the patient struggles to understand, you know, in an intellectual sense, the meaning of the words that he's expressing, he, he nevertheless is able to sort of, I don't know whether it's imitate or take up the, the expressive dimension of the words, right? He, he, can, he can sort of act them out as it were. And Miller-Ponty Miller wants us to notice that, you know, that's, that's because that is its own irreducible and as, he, and as he'll argue, primary layer of signification. So his, his point isn't to separate those two orders and say that, you know, the aesthetic and the intellectual are cut off from one another. Um, his point is to say that that aesthetic layer isn't isn't derivative. It isn't secondary. It isn't added on. It's not an ornament to meaning. Yeah. Rather, it's the more primary, more fundamental context of meaning that we have. Yeah. When he talks about uh, aesthetics and and gesture and what he calls gesture signification. He's very clear to point out that this is culturally mediated. So he has an example about uh, anger in many languages being expressed differently. That you know, anger in one part of the world is not expressed in the same with the same uh, gestures that we would experience it in the Western world. Because if it were, that would mean that there was some external meaning to the sign, which could stand above all culturally mediated experience. And the fact that anger is not expressed uh, the same way in every language <laughs> indicates that no matter how much we want to protest it, the entire act of speaking will be culturally and speaking and thinking, therefore, will be culturally mediated. Yeah, yeah I, what, what jumps out at me and what you what you just said there was the characterization of the difference between the expression of ang anger as a difference between worlds. So I'm just I'm just sort of yeah. playing on the idea of the Western world, um, and the the point there is that it's it's not as though there is this sort of universal experience of anger that different cultures sort of add their own spin on or put their own spin on. Rather, the um, there's a difference between ways of expressing anger reflects the difference the different ways in which we experience the world, the different possible ways of taking up the significance of the world. So, so that, that, that difference goes all, all the way down to the to differences between, as you say, the Western world or the non-Western world. He ends up saying something like, you know, each language is an aesthetic interpretation of the world within that context. So he says in section 228, the predominance of vowels in one language, of consonants in another, or systems of construction and syntax would not represent so many arbitrary conventions for expressing the same thought, but rather several ways for the human body to celebrate the world and to finally live it. Uh, so if expressions were not aesthetically normed by a culture, then emotions like anger, or joy, or affection would be identical cross-linguistically. And um, when I say normed by culture, I'm kind of thinking of a Wittgenstein language game uh, sense of that where a native speaker is able to tell whether an utterance made is within or beyond the language game whether it it's normative in the sense that there are t like there are things that you could do that would cause it not to be understood by your fellow speakers uh, so it's not a prescriptive idea of how language is going to be used but simply an awareness that certain things will play in a game and certain things will not right yeah, and sometimes the things that don't play in a game, at least on, on Merleau-Ponty's account, are, are sort of innovative and actually change the game. For him, you know, spoken speech is, is, is the context for a speaking speech. Language 
is the context in which new meaning happens. So yeah, while on the one hand there there are sort of pre-established norms that we sort of answer to in in developing our capacities as linguistic beings, but those those norms are not self-serving. They are the, they are the norms of of expression, which is to say they are the, they are the norms that whose purpose is to is to make expression and creativity and speaking speech possible. Yeah, he's able to uh, to take up this problem of how, because our language is aesthetically, not, mo- not motivated, motivated is the wrong word, but mediated, that we will, our expression of words will in turn shape the language. So aesthetic content from previous conversations is going to shape subsequent expressions, but also to a certain extent, the grammar of how you think later. And I think we can see this in ex- in an example with the Greeks and the word barbarian, how they thought the foreigners are speaking bar, 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 and then they turned uh, that into a word. They very onomatopoeically used that word. And so this perception of someone else's expression has in turn morphed itself into the very stem of a whole set of words, you know, to be barbaric, to be a barbarian. Like there's all these words now that we have from that sense expression earlier and that there's this continual looping between the aesthetic and the uh, syntactic and morphological components of our language the next time we speak it. Yeah, that makes me think about yeah, Merleau-Ponty's his view about the idea of the arbitrariness of of linguistic signs, as if as if there are sort of a natural sign, and then there's this kind of arbitrary word or gesture or whatever that's sort of added to it. Yeah, um, that because we use it in a context and it can only be understood within that context, uh, that that must mean there's no meaning or uh, expression that's been put into that word yeah. before it's used in that context. Right. Yeah, and so that it just like spontaneously generates yeah. without any. If you if you if if you if you look at language and only take the sort of sedimented product, and you say, look, there's different languages. There's English language. There's the French language, whatever. And all you think about is the difference between various sedimented languages. It kind of looks like, you know, it's arbitrary that, you know, we say nuit or we say night. But his point to to have have adopted that view is to cut off language from its emotional or, or aesthetic or gestural essence, as he says. And he says, if, if you, if you were to, to not do that, if you were, if you were to avoid cutting language off from its expressive emotional essence, you'd realize that uh, ultimately things aren't arbitrary and that there is a kind of necessity to how we end up or, or the the terms we end up using for for certain objects be- because of the of the particular cultural being in the world that that we are and that that is the context for our experience now that being in the world is itself contingent right like there there are various cultural ways of being in the world but with respect to, to each one there's a there's a kind of non-arbitrariness there right so he says a little bit of a long quotation here he says if we could deduct from a vocabulary what was owed to the mechanical laws of phonetics, to the contaminations of foreign languages, to the rationalization of grammarians, and to the imitation of the language itself by itself, we would likely discover a somewhat restrictive system of expression at the origin of each language. But this would likely be a system such that, for example, if we use the word nuit for night, then it would not be arbitrary that we use use lumière for light. Um, so if if we were to, you know, remove all the things that, that compel us to separate language and, you know, turn it into this kind of self-contained superstructure, if we if we didn't do that, we would we'd probably notice that there is a kind of non-arbitrary sort of sense to why to why languages sort of use certain words for objects and why others are different. And that'll be revealed by looking at the aesthetic norms yeah. within that culture. Yeah, exactly. Um related to that uh he speaks a lot of onomatopoeias as this great example and says that uh, not everything uh, is onomatopoeic, but a lot of our words are derived from them, that there are these uh, sound effects that we create because we 
hear things in the world and want to imitate them in our language because our thought is um, derived from being a body in that world and hearing these sounds. Um, and so, you know, this is one of those kind of past perceptive, these past sense experiences that will then work its way into the types of words that we use. So again, not everything is automatic pick, but a lot of words derive from that, that drive to represent our physical environment in our language. So he says, we would then find that words, vowels, and phonemes are so many ways of singing the world and that they are destined to represent objects, not through an objective resemblance in the manner imagined by the naive theory of onomatopoeia, but because they are extracted from them and literally express their emotional essence. So it seems like his, his point there is, is that it's, it's, not, it's not that there, there exists a world of objects that we, we bring a kind of or on which we impose a kind of linguistic superstructure. Rather, our experience of objects is such that they they call to be taken up and named and and given and used and given significance. Right. So, he, like the objects are destined, or uh, the words of vowels, phonemes are destined to represent objects. There's a there's a kind of destiny there, such insofar as the way that we that we experience our the world and live it is one. Of expression, so we we don't bring some external linguistic structure onto objects or the objective world, the world of objects. The world of objects, the way as we live it, is is one that calls to be uttered and expressed. And so, our our naming of object is is sort of in its origin our way of um, giving expression to them, sort of accomplishing their self-expression in a way. Yeah, part of my research has been into uh, Tolkien and invented languages because I think he was keenly aware of this aesthetic expression and its role in forming languages. And indeed, I think there needs to be a better understanding of how speaking is so much uh, trading in aesthetic affect, specifically when we're speaking out loud and not just in our heads, but to other people. We are aware of, you know, what plays in our language game, what create a certain effect in the hearer. And so when Tolkien was creating languages for his literary works, he was always considering how certain sounds or certain clusters of adjectives or lengths of words or types of vowels would create an expression in the mind and possibly the body of, of the hearer. So if you think about the way we choose vocabulary in our own language when we're wanting to be very posh, we use a lot of uh, Latinate words, whereas a lot of our everyday speech might rely on more Germanic roots because we have this long-lasting perception that to be elite or to be posh is to cling to the more Roman side of our, our language. And that's just one example affecting our vocabulary choice. So if you think about syntax and gesture and all of these other aspects of language that are also aesthetically selected. And so with Tolkien, when he was inventing these languages, he was thinking, well, if I use, you know, like a Finnish sound palette, or if I use a more Germanic sound palette, what is that going to say about the character when the character speaks this in the novel? Will they be perceived as kind? Will they be perceived as stern? And so the sound palettes that built up the languages for the, you know, the friendly protagonists and the kind of curmudgeonly antagonists were completely different for that reason. And this is the first time maybe where I found someone who is able to articulate that really well, that our experience of the world will shape our language aesthetically and not just from a place of reason. I think speaking logically or speaking with clarity is fairly low down on the list of priorities when we open our mouths. There are certainly language games or times when we're going to be employing clarity, but in so many ways, the aesthetic has been underplayed in our accounts of language and indeed in our way of teaching languages to other people. It affects the pedagogies of the experience of learning <laughs> English grammar or foreign languages in school is always focusing on learn these irregularities and, and less on what is the aesthetic of this language that you're apprenticing yourself to and how can you more fully embody it? Yeah, because one, one of Merleau-Ponty's things he most basically wants to insist on is that, as, as you call, as you say, aesthetic 
layer of signification is primary. It's the it's the one that we are being habituated into a language. It's the one that we're primarily more immediate immediately put into contact with. And any ability to to use language, you know, rationally or to to use language explicitly as the expression of thought, any ability to do that happens in the, in the context of a of a more basic aesthetic emotional gestural capacity for expression. Yeah, our aesthetic appreciation of our environment far precedes any yeah. uh, like logical yeah. uh, self reflexivity yeah. of of the way right. that we've taken. Yeah, and, and to, to play off your example about coming off as posh, I imagine that's typically not an intellectual exercise that that one necessarily thinks. Oh, I want to I want to sound a certain way. I want I want to I want to come across as as in a certain way. So I'm going to use these words. I'm going to use the words with these roots. Like mm-hmm. rather, it, it's a sort of immediate aesthetic thing. You yeah. just kind of sense that this sounds more posh as opposed to that sounding more. It's almost like speaking two different versions of your own language. Yeah. And it's in the way that people who are bilingual can switch between languages quite quickly. Uh, we do it instinctively without having to tell ourselves, okay, now now we're going to be speaking French and now we're going to be speaking English. You know, Now I'm going to talk to my grandmother. Now I'm going to talk to some children that I'm teaching. Now I'm going to speak with my prof. You know, Now I'm meeting a celebrity. These We fall into these immediately. It's not... The result of concerted effort. It's our our long history of being bodies. Yeah, and they're not those those postures are they're not they're not switching tools like I'm going to use a hammer here and I'm going to use a telephone. They are different ways of taking up the world. Like they're different worlds that we inhabit, as it were. So so to to speak, can't remember exactly your example, but to speak to to speak the sort of Latinate way of using English isn't to have explicitly decided to do that, but is to, is to sort of take up or, or, or to act out of a different kind of world. And that's the point, right? You want to, you want to come across as, as, as having reflected a certain culture or a certain way of being in the world. So yeah, Merleau-Ponty's point is that the sort of gestural aesthetic layer of signification is, it's not a decided or intentional act. It's, it's a particular way that we take up or express our, yeah. our being in the world. And we have this um, like twofold linguistic heritage that we've, uh, you know, we haven't had to learn those two things separately. We haven't had to learn, a you know, a posh and a, a lowly form of vocabulary, or we haven't consciously had to think about the Anglo-Saxon versus the Latin roots. We've grown up with both of them simultaneously and have been aware of the interaction of these these different types of words without even being taught that one of these is Latin and one of these is Anglo-Saxon. We just have this blending and we're just aware that they produce these different effects when we're speaking or thinking. So just before we leave, I think it would be interesting to turn to the end of the chapter uh, just as he's uh, transitioning out of part one of his book into some of these larger goals. And he ends in the last few pages by talking about the Cartesian tradition and about language as being this place where we can see the transcendent ability of a human. Some sort of Kantian uh, transcendental faculty of the mind is what allows us to introduce newness and unexpectedness into our language. That if we didn't have this faculty of imagination, we just kind of keep circling around the new, the same words and not introduce new expressions and not introduce, uh, in turn, new words um, or gestures into our language. Yeah, Merleau-Ponty ends the chapter by, you know, returning to the original issue of the significance of the body, and it's it's a it's actually a, a funny way of putting it because you know he's he's on the one hand, trying to explore what's significant about the fact that we are our body, the fact that our body wholly and fundamentally characterizes our perceptual experience. To, to what extent is the body significant in, in, in giving shape to or being in the world? But it turns out that the, the significance of the body is the fact that it is significant. The fact that the body is not just an object that we inhabit. All, basically all that we have in terms of uh, being the meaning-making 
beings that we are, mm-hmm. right? So that as much as it's a material thing that we, you know, dwell in in that Heideggerian sense that it's uh that it's really pointing towards like if it's a sign, it's a sign toward there being this uh transcendent capacity within the body or within the human mind in a body. Yeah, so he starts the last section uh, of this chapter by saying, even more clearly than the things we've discussed before, this analysis of speech and expression leads us to recognize the enigmatic nature of one's own body. Um, enigmatic nature, namely, is, is, as he's been saying, it's sort of transcendent capacity. It, it is not where it is, and it is not what it is. Right? It's not like it's not just a thing that or a tool that we use to, to make expression. It is expression, right? He says, it has always been observed that gesture or speech transfigure the body, but no more was said than that they developed or manifested a different power. It was not seen that in order to be able to express these things, the body must ultimately become the thought or the intention that it signifies to us. It is the body that shows, the body that speaks. This is what we learned in this chapter. That's kind of what he's wanted to reveal to us is that the body isn't the a sort of separate vehicle for expression that has its own reality. The, the body precisely is the reality of, of expression. And Merleau-Ponty's hope is that that this this account of expression has like he starts he starts the chapter by saying you know when we think about speech, we'll be able to leave behind once and for all the subject object distinction. Like we'll we'll really sort of be in touch with the fact that these things that that our experience is one of a kind of more basic ambiguity or non-distinction between subject and object which is another way of saying being in the world um, and so that's for that reason he sort of ends by returning to, to Descartes and saying you know in the Cartesian tradition we've 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 sort of developed the habit of reflecting ourselves out of our embodied experience and thinking of ourselves as subjects that have a body and he says well the whole of part one of the book which culminates in this account of expression has been to show that we aren't subjects that that have a body or live in a body, we we are our body. Like that, the only subjectivity we can have is is the one that is our body. Is is the subject that that is that is our body. He says um, the body is not. Second last sentence. The body is not merely one object among all others that resists reflection and remains, uh, so to speak, or it, re- it resists reflection and remains, so to speak, glued to the subject. Um, and so that the ambiguity that 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 he's that he's shown, or, or the obscurity, as he says here, b- between subject and object, that's that's characteristic of our entire experience. That's that's sort of the point that he wants to reach. That sets up part two, where he now he's going to talk about what is perception. There's a uh, wonderful quotation from section two thirty nine uh, that calls speech the excess of our existence beyond natural being says but the act of expression constitutes a linguistic and cultural world it makes that which stretched beyond fall back into being i just like this idea that there's just so much beyond the material that we can sense within a material body Mm -hmm. uh that it spills over into speech right which Um, which, but and and in turn kind of returns us to this this being in a body that it's a cyclical relationship yeah another another line from earlier in the chapter that that i always come back to you when I'm thinking about this is he says for for us as human beings um translations I'll say man but whatever for, for human beings everything is natural and conventional or everything is natural and artificial or another way to put that is everything is or he also says everything is mechanical and intellectual the point being there like or you say everything is material and um cultural so, so speech as the excess of our existence beyond natural being. Um, never, like speech never stops being material. It never, it never, never ultimately departs from its material origins, even when it becomes thought. Rather, what what speech reveals to us is the implicit excess of of matter, of material. Speech is the excess of our existence, excess of being itself beyond its own origin which which as he says falls back into being and becomes sort of established speech but again that that established reality of speech you know is nevertheless self-transcendent self-transcendent just like our bodies are, are nevertheless um like they are they are material objects but they are 
the site for an immaterial subject. Yeah, and that the uh, phenomenon of speech shows us that body isn't this block to anything transcendent, that it's not this impediment to us understanding the part of ourselves that is immortal or make sense of our environments, not just be in them, but make sense of them and and come to know um, things that are beyond it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't hesitate for to describe language as a miracle. <laughs> no, I liked that uh, that couple of times. At the end. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's this. Uh, it it's interesting. It starts off very clinical, talking about like types of aphasia and rationalism and intellectualism, and by the end, he's just like in complete awe. Yeah. Of uh, what speech accomplishes in a human body. Mm-hmm. Or or what a body accomplishes of its own self-transcending power in speech yes that's a good clarification yeah thank you very much for joining me today andrew thank you it was my, my pleasure you can find us on facebook at the institute for christian studies or on twitter as inscur that's i n s c h r our email is criticalfaith at icscanada.edu If you have an opportunity, please leave us an iTunes review. I'm Julia DeBora, and you've been listening to Critical Faith, a podcast sponsored by the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, Ontario.